Welcome to the SBCA podcast, Component Connection. Hello, my name is Sean Shields, and today I'll be your host for this SBCA podcast series, looking at trends in the component manufacturer's supply chain. My guest today is Art Schmoen, a partner for Forest Economic Advisors. Art, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure, Sean. Well, Art, I think there are few people on the planet that know more about global engineered wood products than you do. Uh, can you briefly share with our listeners how you came to amass this wealth of knowledge on engineered wood products in the industry? Let's uh, thanks, uh, Sean, for those uh, those kind words. Uh, I guess the quick answer is you just have to live long enough. Um, <laughs> the longer answer, I guess, would be that uh, you no, know, I was very lucky in my career to have had a lot of uh, great experiences and to kind of be at the right uh, place at the right time. And uh, so, yes, I, I enjoyed some very unique experiences. However, my career uh, goes back 47 years, and I joined a company called McMillan Bloedel in 1973. And from 1974 to 1990, I managed uh, the market research, product testing, and commercial launch. I had various jobs, including those jobs, of Paralam PSL. And uh, I actually named the product, uh, a little bit of trivia for you. Um, but during that time, we did an enormous amount of testing on Paralam, including the use of Paralam as tension cords in ag trusses. And in 1977, we, uh, we retained Stan Sudarth as a consultant, and I worked closely with Stan for about seven years. And what a privilege that was. Through Stan, I got to know other people. I think your audience will probably, or many of you in your audience will recognize, including Don Percival. Uh, Charlie Harnden, Bill McAlpin, and uh, George Everly. We actually worked quite closely with George Everly to develop a new truss plate um, for use with composite materials like Paralam and LVL. So it was just an amazing experience to work with these uh, to, with those people. And uh, this is how I first became involved with uh, trusses, in a sense. We uh, in today's dollars we spent um, uh, in excess of $10 million testing Paralam, just breaking Paralam. McMillan Bledel had uh, was, a, was Canada's largest forest products company in those days, and they had a huge budget for R&D. And uh, so we did an awful lot of testing, and we used LVL and select structural lumber as control material. Um, Stan Sudarth made a comment to me that, in his view, it was the most extensive testing program ever carried out on a structural wood product in the history of the industry. So, um, and as I mentioned earlier, at the same time I was managing the marketing group and our engineering team during the market rollout of Paralam uh, in, the, in the U.S., Canada, Europe, and Japan. So in 1991, McMillan Bledel and Trust Joist, uh, which was actually TJ International, established a joint venture partnership called Trust Joist McMillan. And I was given the job of starting up the company's uh, European operations. Uh, so during that time, we actually introduced uh, Paralam, uh, LVL, LSL, known as Timberstrand, and TGIs to the European market. And uh, along the way, we, uh, we set up offices in the UK, Germany, France, and uh, Dubai, and also a head office in Belgium. But working in Europe was, was really uh, just a fantastic learning experience. Um, if you were to stick a, a compass point in the Lake of Constance and draw a 200-kilometer radius, the Europeans in that region, when I mean, that's the Alpine region of Europe, 
Those people have been doing wood frame and heavy timber construction for hundreds of years. And so the manufacturers, engineers, and contractors in that region have amazing skill sets with heavy timber construction. And again, I was there from 1991 till 97. And so during that time, I was fortunate to see a lot of uh, new innovations in heavy timber construction, including the birth of the mass timber industry. Uh, fast forward to 2009, I joined uh, Forest Economic Advisors, yet another startup. And I've been working with uh, Forest Economic Advisors, known as FEA, right up to the present day, doing forecasts and analysis of uh, engineered lumber products, and more recently, forecasts and analysis of mass timber products and markets. And finally, in 2018, uh, I managed the startup of a new international conference on offsite construction called IWBC, which we hold in Boston each fall. Sorry for the long-winded answer. <laughs> no, Art, that's really good. There's a lot to potentially unpack there, a lot of topics that we could explore. Uh, in today's podcast, I'd like to focus in on one thing. I'd like to focus in on wood-framed floor systems. Uh, traditionally, floor systems were framed in the U.S. with solid sawn dimensional lumber joists. And what I'm curious to hear from you is, what did you see occur um, that caused that to change? What was the motivation uh, by the wood products industry to sort of, or maybe it was the construction industry, find an alternative to these solid sawn joists? Why, why was there a push to develop these engineered wood products? Where did that come from here in the U.S.? Sure. Well, I'll kick it off with the iJoist industry. Uh, iJoists and floor trusses emerged at about the same time, I think. Their floor trusses probably preceded iJoists. But in any event, I'll, I'll start with iJoists. And when you go to iJoists, there's actually some irony in the answer to that question because the company that introduced the iJoist to North America was actually a truss fabricator. Um, it was TrustJoist. And TrustJoist pioneered the iJoist in 68. They launched it in 1970. Um, and this was effectively Trust Joyce entry into the residential market. Prior to that, Trust Joyce was exclusively marketing their own proprietary open web parallel cord roof truss with metal tubular webbing. And that product was exclusive into the non-residential construction market, typically schools, warehouses, uh, some office buildings, but it was a non-residential product. And so with the, you know, with the iJoist, all of a sudden, they were into the residential market and their timing by sheer luck happened to be ideal because in the 70s and 80s, there was a fundamental shift in residential architecture, which I'm sure, you know, if you, if you go back into that time period, um, architects were moving from building boxes to building homes with a lot more complexity and with open floor plans. And uh, that they were open floor plans in both multifamily and single family homes. And open layouts, of course, require long, clear spans. So long length lumber was expensive and just didn't have the load bearing capacity for long spans. Um, the other problem with lumber, of course, is you can't drill big holes through it for mechanical, electrical and plumbing. So it was quite impractical when it came to that. Um, and another issue at that time, or another, shouldn't say issue, but another one of the things that, that customers were demanding at that time, particularly in mid-scale and upscale homes, was that there was a growing demand for nine-foot ceilings. They want, people wanted higher feet ceilings. And at the same time, in many parts of the country, you had height limitations on houses. 
So if you want a higher ceiling and you've got a height limitation, uh, it means that you have to try to minimize the floor ceiling separation. So in other words, you didn't have a lot of depth to deal with there for load carrying capacity and mechanical, electrical, and plumbing. Uh, enter eye joists. They came at a premium, but they had the muscle for the long, clear spans. They were lightweight. You could have wider spacing. You could run mechanicals, electrical, and plumbing through the webs. And of course, the company that brought them into the market was TrustJoist. And TrustJoist very cleverly bundled uh, the eye joists themselves, along with uh, hangers and engineered floor plans and a life of structure warranty. And then later on, they added LVL beams and headers to the bundle. So they had really quite a, a powerful bundle. Um, and they also did, and I can say this because I wasn't with TrustJoist at the time, so I had nothing to do with this, but TrustJoist also did a phenomenal job of branding and marketing. You, you probably remember the silent floor. It's not used as much anymore, but the silent floor trademark became so well known that real estate companies would use the silent floor brand name in their advertising for resale houses. You can pick up a newspaper and see silent floor all over the, uh, uh, the resale house market. So then along came other manufacturers, uh, Louisiana Pacific, Georgia Pacific, and others in the 80s and 90s. And that's when it really started to take off. So I, Joyce, uh, were really on the march at that point. In 1990, um, just to give you an example, I, Joyce, market share in single family raised floors was 13%. By 2002, it was 45%. And it actually peaked at 52% in 2010. And then came trouble. In 2015, changes to the fire protection requirements in the industrial residential, uh, in the international, I should say, residential code, effectively put the brakes on iJoist uh, market share, uh, particularly in the Northeast and the Midwest, where, of course, most of the basements are constructed in the U.S., and this, of course, affected floor trusses as well, Sean, as you well know, because I know SPCA uh, has done a lot of work trying to, to reverse that decision. Um, I'll just leave it there. So right, let's follow up on that. So the, the code change proposal uh, really had a very appreciable effect on the use of iJoists across the country. To varying degrees, again, it depends on what part of the country we're talking about. In other words, if, uh, as I just mentioned, um, in the north, the east, and the Midwest, that's where most of the basements are built. Basements are far less common in the west than in the south. And so, and this code change primarily affected joists over basements, right? Because that's where typically builders don't finish. They like to leave, uh, they like to leave the basement uh, joists unfinished. And, uh, and with these uh, changes to the fire codes, all of a sudden they had to, uh, they either had to use half inch gypsum or five eighths inch wood structural panel membrane to be applied to the underside of the floor joist. In other words, uh, it added a bunch of cost, 50% um, or more to the cost basically of that structural ground floor. So um, that was, that was a big uh, whammy and, um, you know, you had uh, different kinds of re responses to that. Um, some builders just went back to two by tens, two by twelves. Some continued to use uh, they, they used two by tens on the on the ground floor, but then went to I joists on the second floor. 
But then, of course, you know, you're sourcing two different products and many of those builders ended up going back to two by tens again on the ground floor. So it, it, it certainly had an impact on uh, iJoyce consumption. Um, it wasn't huge, again, because it was limited primarily to the Northeast and the North Central. And that's not where most of the iJoyce in the U.S. are consumed. More of them are actually consumed in the South and the West. So, um, but, it, it, but it had an impact. And I would say that it, it was enough of an impact to, to put, as I mentioned, to put the brakes on the growth in market share. And so, um, I mean, I would say, you know, certainly in our forecast now, we do not see any significant gains in market share ahead for iJoyce. Um, we think that iJoyce are a mature product and uh, with these changes to the fire codes and the additional cost associated with using iJoyce in ground floor, uh, we, we think that we're likely to see iJoyce market share flat or slightly down over time. Let me back up just a little bit, Art, because that market share growth of these engineered iJoists from the 70s to the 90s was pretty significant. I mean, going from 10% or 12% to you know over 50%, you raised a few of the issues of why uh, it caught on very quickly. You know, the idea of wanting uh, large open rooms, so you need these long spans. Was there anything else that occurred that contributed to sort of that meteoric rise of their market share, or was that pretty much it? Again, with iJoyce, of course, you could go uh, much deeper than you could with with solid sawn lumber. I mean, typical iJoyce depths are 11, 7, 8, 14, and 16, for example. You can go much deeper. Um, also, there was the, as I mentioned, there was the issue of mechanicals, which is a big issue. Uh, you, you don't want to be running mechanicals beneath the joists. You want to run them through the joists, and you can't do that with a solid sawn joist, you know, easily at least. It's very, very difficult. And and you can do it with iJoists, and of course you can do it with uh, open web trusses, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, in a minute. But um, so those were big. Uh, those were big issues. Of course, iJoists were lighter weight, which meant that uh, the joists went in much more quickly. I mean, one guy walking around a job site can hold an iJoist in each hand. You can't do that with uh, two by ten. Um, so. You know, it, everything went uh, more smoothly and more quickly, and at lower cost. Um, so I think those were the big, uh, the big pluses. Fire was always an issue, but it was kind of more in the background. There were, uh, I'm sure, as you're aware, some of the uh, the unions in New York and Chicago uh, had registered pretty sharp complaints about uh, iJoyce floors collapsing in fires, and um, I don't think I'm not aware that there were many casualties from that, but certainly there was a risk there, a perceived risk there, and that was always an issue, but it was kind of kept in the background until these uh, these new regulations came along in the code, and then then it was front and center. I think those were the principal reasons, and, and I think uh, one of the other things that happened, uh, though, during that time was that uh, open web trust fabricators became more innovative. So, Art, you mentioned early on uh, that open web floor trusses came about at about the same time as engineered eye joists. Let's talk a little bit about their history and uh, what came about that allowed that product to come on the market and sort of what its trajectory from a market share perspective looked like. Okay. 
So, Sean, I'm sure your audience knows more about floor trusses than I will ever know. Uh, but in many ways, I think uh, floor trusses have a number of uh, advantages over iJoyce. Probably better to say that iJoyce and open web floor trusses each have strengths and weaknesses. But certainly, um, I think in many, many situations, open web floor trusses have advantages over iJoyce. Probably their biggest advantage is that they're about 80% air. And so it's far easier to run mechanicals through them. I mean, you can place a, a chase just about anywhere in a floor truss. You can't do that with an iJoyce. You can put bigger openings in the, in the center span of an iJoyce, but you can't near the edges. And uh, so because of that, that flexibility and placement for holes and chases, uh, the runs for mechanical electrical and plumbing tend to be shorter and everything goes more quickly. Not so with an iJoyce. So hard to quantify. But I would say that mechanical, electrical, and plumbing generally goes much faster with floor trusses than it does with iJoyce. So um, the big advantage then is, is labor and in terms of the shorter runs, material savings associated with uh, MEP. And the other thing, of course, is the floor trusses are typically, you know, quite often two by four flange, uh, top cord, bottom cord, uh, whereas, um, uh, I joists are typically two by three or even narrower in the case of LVL flange I joists. And so the wider flange on floor trusses is handy for framers as well. It makes uh, life easier for them when they're uh, with their pneumatic uh, nailers. Traditionally, the downside for floor trusses is that they had to be custom designed and uh, ordered for each job. In other words, uh, they weren't stockable at dealer yards. Now, that's not much of a, of a disadvantage for, for multifamily projects, particularly larger multifamily projects, where there is lots of advanced planning. But for uh, single-family residential, this gave iJoyce, I think, a big advantage. But then along came trimmable floor trusses. You're familiar with trimmable floor trusses? <laughs> yes. So uh, uh, lots of uh, different types, of course, on the market today, different uh, ways to do it. But the most common, I think, and you correct me if I'm wrong, because you're probably closer to this than I am, but I think the most common is a kind of hybrid floor truss and eye joist. That's where the main body of the truss is, it looks pretty much like a standard open web truss, but, the, but then on the ends or on one end, depending on the manufacturer, uh, you have uh, essentially OSB, effectively forming an eye joist on each end or on one end again. So those ends are trimmable in the field. And because of that flexibility, uh, trimmable floor trusses do not require advanced custom design. In fact, they're stockable at dealer yards. And so now they're right up against eye joists and this has allowed floor trusses to gain uh, some market share in the single family residential market as well as extending share in the multifamily market. Now, I don't have the most recent uh, uh, HIRL uh, market share reports, and those reports are, you know, not always totally accurate. They're based on sampling. Um, but my understanding is that, uh, that floor trusses have, in fact, been gaining market share, and it's been largely at the expense of iChoice. And um, I think I would expect that to continue. I don't think at a fast clip, but I would expect to see a gradual erosion 
of uh, iJoy share by uh, by floor trusses, particularly with some of these newer products. I think floor trusses um, uh, have a great future. And the other thing I would say, just further to that, is when you look at this newly evolving um, construction methodology known as offsite construction, uh, and I'm talking now about fully integrated offsite construction, not just uh, you know, not just fabrication of, of trusses and, and wall panels. Um, but when you look at, at some of the companies who are doing uh, the fully integrated offsite construction piece, um, you tend to see, and again, I have no data to support this. This is just uh, anecdotal, but uh, I see a lot more floor trusses than I do eye joists in that kind of construction. So when you see floor elements, for example, being delivered to job sites or modules being delivered to job sites, I see more floor trusses than eye joists. So that's just another sort of observation. So our, there's basically from a, a structural floor system perspective, there are these three options that a builder has, solid saw and joists, uh, open web floor trusses, and engineered eye joists. You've sort of gone through the growth of those two other products taking market share from solid saw. Um, where do you see this going? Um, you know, do you see that eye joists are going to continue holding somewhere around 50% uh, floor trusses are going to have their percentage and solid stone is going to take the rest? Or is that going to shift over time, given what you're seeing with construction methodology these days? So what I'm seeing with construction methodology is that even though it's still at an embryonic stage, it's still small, but uh, we have very little doubt about where things are headed. Um, we think that they're headed in the direction of more off-site construction and more integration, vertical integration, uh, within uh, the offsite construction uh, industry, and the reason for that is very simple, and that is, and we've done, uh, we've studied these numbers, uh, you know, backwards, forwards, around, and through. Uh, we just don't have the labor, basically, to do things the old-fashioned way uh, much longer, and you and you're seeing a lot of push in the direction of offsite. In fact, when you see Pulte, for example, buying ICG, and you see Builders First Source buying uh, Rainy, Buddy Rainy, you're starting to see, you know, that uh, big companies are beginning to recognize where the future lies, and it's going to lie in the direction of uh, more offsite construction, vert vertically integrated offsite construction. And now, when you see that, you're when you start to move into a factory environment um, for construction, um, it places very different kinds of demands on the raw material. And so, for example, uh, you know, lumber, uh, anybody who's looked at a bunk of lumber dropping a job site lately has seen a lot of wane, a lot of crook and bow and uh, dimensional tolerances that aren't all that consistent. And uh, that's fine for an on-site builder because an on-site builder can build that into a frame. He, you know, he's skilled and he knows where to put certain pieces of wood and so on and so forth. That doesn't work in a factory. Robots don't like warp, crook, wane, and bow, and they don't like poor dimensional tolerances. And so the demands that are gonna be placed on these raw materials are gonna be very, very different going forward. And we're already seeing that. Um, I mean, a couple of examples uh, in Tecra, I know talking to uh, Jerry McCaughey, he was rejecting 20 to 25% of the lumber that was reaching his plant because he just didn't want to throw it into the process because it was going to stop machines. And, uh, and another example, uh, our, our friends from Katera 
who originally were planning to build everything with wood. Um, they were going to be using both light frame uh, wood construction as well as mass timber are now slipping away from uh, light frame construction, going to light grade steel. And one of the primary reasons for that was the quality of lumber they were receiving. So getting back, Sean, to your question about what do I see for the future of sawn lumber? I, I think, again, this isn't going to happen overnight. This is going to be a very slow, gradual process. But I see over time, as, as the industry moves more in the direction of offsite construction, uh, I see uh, a move toward engineered wood products, basically, in that process. And um, so I see off-site construction factories, in some cases, making those engineered products, like trusses, for example. And so, you know, uh, I think the future looks quite bright for engineered wood products and for prefabricated uh, trusses, not quite as bright uh, for sawn lumber. That's, that's just my take. I'm sure there would be a lot of people who would disagree with me, <laughs> but uh, that's my take. So you made a comment that I think bears following up on. You know, when you talk about the lumber quality issues with sort of the, the dimensional lumber coming out of the mill um, and possibly replacing that with an engineered wood product, what are you talking about there specifically? Well, I'll give you one example. Uh, probably one of the most advanced um, off-site construction companies that I'm aware of is uh, AccuBuilt. AccuBuilt is uh, wholly owned by Landmark Homes, and you can go on YouTube and and just uh, put the search term AccuBuilt in, and you can see some videos of their process. And uh, you won't see a lot of sawn lumber. You will see a lot of laminated strand lumber in that process. And so, and and for precisely the reasons I just mentioned because uh, robots love the stuff. It's interesting, laminated strand lumber has had some challenges in on-site construction because it doesn't do so well when exposed to rain. And uh, sometimes it can be hard to nail into. It has uh, pretty high density. Neither of those are issues in a plant environment, obviously. Robots can nail into virtually anything and, and there's no rain in, inside a factory. So, um, so LSL becomes a very, very uh, you know, appropriate material for automated construction in a factory environment. And that's just one example. There are other offsite builders uh, like Blueprint Robotics, for example, who are using LVL in a lot of applications, plate stocks, studs, many other applications inside a plant. Yes, it costs more, but it also uh, provides them with far greater operational efficiency. Robotics is definitely one of those um futuristic things that component manufacturers are very interested in, you know, how, how can robots potentially be applied to the manufacturing of trusses it sort of fits into the overall conversation that we have a tendency in our industry of talking more about just automation, uh, you know, replacing human hands with, um, you know, mechanical ones, whether or not it's advanced AI and robotics, you know, it's a varying scale, right? Right. So that's interesting. So would you envision a future where component manufacturers are building trusses out of engineered wood members then? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I mentioned earlier in our chat that, you know, that we did quite a bit of work on, on the use of Paralam in ag truss, tension cords, actually. I didn't mention that, but we were looking at the use of Paralam for tension cords and ag trusses because of the long spans and the need for extremely high tensile strength in the tension cords. And, uh, you know, we developed problems while we were testing the product uh, with a thing called plug shear, 
That is to say that these truss plates were failing at the plate, basically, uh, instead of in the wood member, which is where you want it to fail. And so we had to spend a bunch of time, uh, again, with, this, with George Everly, developing a truss plate, which would eliminate plug shear and which would fail the truss, uh, fail the wood instead of the, the connection. And we were successful, but it, it took you know quite a long time. It took a year or so of working with it. I think there's a lot of potential for uh, engineered wood products such as LSL, PSL, and goodness knows what else is coming along in trusses, in prefabricated trusses. But, you know, it's going to require some research and development. And uh, you probably aren't going to see it until, you know, with lumber prices as low as they are for some time to come. But, um, you know, eventually, I think uh, we are going to see more engineered lumber in, in trusses. Uh, uh, I think, you know, quite frankly, we need a bit of a breakthrough in the engineered lumber costs. Um, they're still high. There are technologies I know under development, which might, uh, which I can't talk about, but which might lower those costs. <laughs> and uh, if we see those engineered lumber costs come down, uh, I think we're going to see a lot more work, you know, with uh, engineered lumber and, and trusses. Art, one thing that we haven't touched upon yet uh, is the resource side of of things for the engineered wood manufacturers, particularly, let, let's say, eye joists and uh, flange stock, for example. Are there any challenges that uh, those manufacturers are facing that may have an impact on either the supply of their product going forward or the, how their product uh, looks in the future? Uh, yes, there are, definitely are. And... Um... And a lot of this, you know, these are problems that tend to, uh, they tend to be hidden when housing starts are low and they tend to rear their ugly heads when housing starts uh, get high. And, um, and so at the moment, you know, or at least prior to COVID, you know, the housing market was just starting to really uh, surge. Uh, but prior to that, we were looking at 1.2 million housing starts. And so we didn't have scarcity, for example, for a product like two by three. And why is two by three important? Well, because when you look at eye joists, for example, uh, just a little under 40% of the eye joists consumed in North America are solid sawn uh, two by three MSR flanges. And most of the two by three, like upwards of 90% of the two by three in North America is manufactured in Ontario and Quebec. And most of that is in Quebec. Okay, so just one region. You don't see Southern Pine 2x3 being manufactured. Um, and it wouldn't be very good for iJoyce, even if it were. So that's where all the 2x3 comes from. And if we get back to 1.5, 1.6 million housing starts, you're going to start to see some scarcity of 2x3, which will drive up the price of 2x3 to iJoyce manufacturers, which will further erode, if you like, iJoyce competitive position versus uh, versus open web trusses, uh, except of course that open web trusses uh, also use two by three. Although my understanding, and again, I'm not an expert on the truss uh, market, but my understanding is the two by four is much more common. We don't see a problem with the shortage of two by four MSR, but we do see a problem, potential problem, with tightening of supply in the in the two by three area. So. These are things to watch. It's something that we, we watch in our forecasts quite closely. Um, interesting, when you look at 2x3 in Quebec, there's one company, 
uh, one single company uh, is responsible for about uh, 70% of the two by three that comes out of Quebec. And uh, so they have quite a bit of market power when it comes to uh, that product and how it's priced. And uh, they have also choices in markets. For example, bed slats use two by three as well. So uh, just to give you one example. And so, um, yeah, I think that that's a, a vulnerability. Again, it's only a little less than 40% of iJoyce. The rest is LVL flange uh, iJoyce, but uh, it's something that could, uh, that could cause problems for iJoyce manufacturers going forward. Art, I'm curious, for the manufacturers of engineered iJoyce, is, is that product a leader for them? Do they derive a lot of profit and um, market share from that product? Uh, what is their motivation to make more of it or less of it, to market it heavily, that kind of thing? I'm, I'm curious what, what the companies who manufacture that product feel about it. Okay, that, that's a very good question. Um, and I'm sure it does vary from manufacturer to manufacturer. The answer to this question would vary, of course. But I think, you know, in general, margins, gross margins on iJoyce are lower, have been lower than gross margins on LVL beams and headers, for example. So uh, one of the principal manufacturers of iJoyce uh, said to me once, and I won't tell you which one it was, but the CEO said to me, Art, uh, we, we make iJoyce as a convenience to our customers. So that doesn't sound to me as like, hey, Art, we make iJoyce because we make a lot of money out of them. Um, and so I think there's less of a drive, if you will, to sustain iJoyce market share, more of a drive to sell beams and headers. Uh, beams and headers are a more profitable product for most of the uh, LVL manufacturers. So, I mean, one of the big pushes, and we talk about this in our forecast, uh, one of the big pushes over the past uh, uh, 15, 20 years was to see if it would be possible to make iJoyce flanges out of LSL, for example. TrustJoyce, for a while, had an LSL flange iJoyce. They withdrew it from the market. Um, there have been other attempts at doing that. It, it's problematic. One of the principal problems is blows in, uh, in the LSL, which... Uh, are not a huge issue. These minute blows aren't a huge issue if you're talking about a beam and header, but they become significant when you're talking about a slender flange and they're not visible to the eye. So, um, and there've been all kinds of other issues associated with LSL and flanges. Uh, again, the issue of the propensity to swell on job sites in the presence of rain, uh, nailing issues and so on. But the reason for the drive toward LSL was because right now, um, about uh, almost 30% of all of the LVL produced in North America goes into flange stock for iJoyce. And most of that is, uh, all, virtually all of the iJoyce produced in North America are produced by LVL manufacturers. And so the, the flange stock is uh, basically its internal transfer pricing. And I won't get into prices in this discussion, but just simply to say that uh, internal transfer prices for iJoyce flange stock are much lower than the market prices for LVL beams and headers. In other words, if an LVL manufacturer had its druthers, I'm sure they'd probably rather sell 100% of their output into beams and headers and not any into flange stock. So that was the drive to see if LSL could perhaps be an appropriate, uh, be a good product for flange stock. 
But again, it hasn't happened yet. Now, that's a long-winded answer, but I hope I've been able to communicate that in general, I think high joists uh, have been uh, not as attractive uh, to the manufacturers as have been, for example, beams and headers. You know, in terms of margins, I think the margins have been higher for beams and headers than for, for high joists. Excellent. No, yeah, that wasn't what I was getting after. It was one of those things that you and I have had that discussion a few times over the years, and I wanted to make sure I sort of understood that right. And it seemed to fit in here too, because I think what that does is it feeds back to um, as the market share for eye joists erodes. Um, you know, what is the motivation for the eye joist manufacturers to step up the marketing game, right? To, to push these even harder. And and what I'm hearing is that there isn't a great motivation for them to try to recapture that market share. Right. So, all right, last question for you. Uh, given your recent pivot into sort of the offsite construction uh, evolution, revolution that's happening in North America and across the globe, uh, if you were to give some advice to component manufacturers who make open web floor trusses, and you look at the, you know, what has occurred in the structural floor system market, uh, would you have any advice to offer them as far as what opportunities should they be looking for to uh, gain market share, to find new avenues to sell that product in the market today? I would. And, and again, and I know I'm probably going to sound like a broken record um, here, but I think that trust fabricators probably better than any other uh, component of the industry have an opportunity to move in the direction of industrialized construction. I mean, they're already partially in industrialized construction, but I think uh, they have an opportunity to grow to vertically integrate and, and try to uh, integrate the channel essentially. Um, so I think they should be keeping an eye on it certainly at this point and look for examples of companies that have been successful. Um, I mean, Again, you know Rainy Construction, you know Innovative Construction Group, uh, you've got Factory OS, you've got Vaughn Buckley, Blanker, Bensonwood. There are a lot of companies that have achieved a lot of success. I mean, both Rainy and ICG, for example, have both been acquired recently. Um, and so they were quite profitable. So there is a real opportunity, I think, for companies to, uh, to move in that direction. And I wouldn't suggest anyone... You know, I'm not suggesting that everyone runs out and invests in a, in a big uh, plant. Uh, in fact, when you look at some of the companies that have been successful, such as Rainy and ICG, it was done incrementally. These companies didn't uh, rush into this. They did things incrementally, but they moved up the channel, basically, with integration, and they were quite successful. And one of the reasons they were successful is because they were solving the biggest problem in the construction industry today, and that is construction labor productivity. They were basically becoming uh, more productive and they were becoming less dependent on uh, on-site labor. And I think uh, that to me is, is the thing to keep your eye on, you know, is what I'm doing today going to uh, make the construction process go faster? And is it going to be, is going to make the construction process less costly? And so I think, uh, you know, fully integrated offsite construction uh, and there are lots of ways to skin that cat is the thing to keep an eye on uh, because we just simply don't have adequate labor to meet anticipated housing demand the old fashioned way. And even if we did, we wouldn't be able to build fast enough. 
Well, Art, thank you very much for joining us on our podcast today. My pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. I'd also like to thank our listeners for spending this time with us, hopefully gaining some insight into uh, the emerging trends in the component manufacturer's supply chain. Thank you for listening to SBCA's podcast, Component Connection. We are committed to bringing you a variety of information via this podcast. Please email your feedback or suggestions for future topics to podcast at sbcindustry.com.